We're going to begin reading in the first verse of Acts chapter 1. You follow along as I read out loud. Luke says in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after He suffered by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. This passage at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 serves as a bridge between book one, which is the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, where this is the beginning. Both books, Luke's Gospel and Acts, were written by the same person. And that's why he says that in my former book. So this passage serves as a bridge because it has the same event in both passages. Luke 24 ends with the ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 1 begins with the ascension of Jesus. And so you can see that this is the the glue, the connection between these two books. They belong together. Book 1 tells us everything, or not everything, but everything that Luke records for us about what Jesus did while He was here on earth. Book 2, the book of Acts, tells us now what happens after Jesus is gone what He continues to do through His followers. That's why the book is called Acts. If you look at the very beginning, it will say the Acts of the Apostles. But what it really is, is the continued work of Jesus through the disciples. Because Jesus is still with us, remember? He said, right at the time when He ascended, in Matthew's Gospel, He said, I will be with you till the end of the age. So Jesus has left. His physical presence is no longer here. But Jesus has not left us alone. This setting is the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem, on the Bethany side. This is where Jesus ascends back into heaven. 
So this is the end of his first visit to earth. That first 33 years. That's called his first coming. Now, for those of us who are believers in Christ and what he taught, we believe he's coming back, which will be, do the math, folks, if that was his first coming, what's the next one going to be? There you go, his second coming. And so that's what it means when you hear people talk about the second coming of Jesus. His first coming was when he lived on earth for 33 years, and that ended when he went back into heaven. We are living now in that middle period between the first coming of Christ waiting for the second coming of Christ. So what we have here, though, in Acts chapter 1 are Jesus' final words before He leaves. So we want to pay attention to what He says. Not that His other words aren't important too, but this is very important because, listen, this is what He says as He's walking out the door. So what did He say? Well, look at verse 4. The first thing we want to look at in verse 4, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of of the Father. One of the most frustrating words in the English language is the word wait. As a parent, it's easier to tell a child no than it is to say wait. Because when you say wait, they'll give you like five seconds. Okay, now? Okay, now? No, no, wait. Now? I'm not good at waiting. I don't know about you, but I am just not good at being patient. Jesus tells his disciples to wait. He had told his disciples that he was sending them into the world to be witnesses. And then he says, but wait. Now to understand why Jesus told them to wait, go back to verse 4 again. The last part of verse 4. He says, Wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit who had been promised. We're going to talk about that more next week when the actual event of the Holy Spirit coming and baptizing them in His power. But why wait? Why wait for the Spirit? Look at verse 8. He says in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power. The point of waiting for the Spirit is clear. We are waiting for the Spirit so that we can have the power to do what Jesus tells us to do. This is the same thing that Jesus said at the close of Luke's Gospel. Luke 24, 49 says, Behold, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Wait! Stay in the city until you're clothed with power. Why do we wait? Because we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told His disciples to wait and not to try to do anything much until they have that power. Well, this is some important advice, isn't it? Just because Jesus 
has been raised from the dead doesn't mean that the rest of it rests on us. He's done His part, now we're going to do the rest of it. Far too often today, we blunder when we press forward in our own strength, in our own power. Assuming that we know enough and we can do enough, so let's just do it. During life's problems, we're often tempted to just rush forward, grab the bull by the horns, and fix it ourselves. We're often guilty of running ahead of God and trying to do things in our own power, in our own strength. Don't forget, it's not like we're totally powerless. We're not. We have financial power. We have physical power. We have intellectual power. Hey, we've got some power. We do. But there are limits to the power that we have. We want more power in our lives, but we don't want to wait for it. We just want to go. You ever hear people say, do something. I just had to do something. Well, when we try to do something, anything, in our own power, we can often make things worse. You ever notice that? We're like Tim Taylor, remember? From Home Improvement, Tool Time. What was his motto? Remember? More power. Anything, if it didn't work, get a bigger machine, get a bigger, right? When we try to just overpower our problems with our own strength, we often make things worse. We'll break the bolt by applying too much pressure when it's frozen, rather than putting something on it to loosen it up first. Because, right, I'm, I'm like you, I'll spray that WD-40 on there, and then I'll, boom, break it. Right? Why, why wait for the stuff? It's penetrating oil. But who needs to wait for it? Just spray it and boom, break it. That's us in our lives. We don't want to wait for God's power. We just want to fix it. We just want to go. But the apostles were told to wait for the coming Holy Spirit. We would gain more power in our lives if we would learn... To wait. In the business of life, we need to learn how to just be still and wait. And that's hard for us, isn't it? You see, we need spiritual power. We have financial power, intellectual power, we have physical power, but what we need is spiritual power. And we just assume if, if we go forward, God will keep up with us. And we're just out of the gate. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And Jesus says, now wait. I don't like the way. I want to go. Right? I want to fix the problem. Let's get moving here. We need God's power not the flesh, the power of our own strength. 
But to have God's power, to have this spiritual strength, we've got to be plugged into the Holy Spirit. I do a lot of work on computers. I help people with computer problems. And oftentimes, by the time they get to me, it's a major problem. And so I have to call tech support. I have to call the people and explain to them. And they don't realize I've already gone through 20 steps, the, the basics. You know. But one of the first things they ask you when you can't get the computer to start, is it plugged in? Oh, see, I wouldn't have thought of that one. Right? But why do they say that? Because over time they've learned people call in and can't get their computer to start when it wasn't plugged in. So as dumb as the question sounds, is it plugged in, it's not that dumb. Because we do make that mistake. We don't get plugged into the power. Well, the same is true with the Holy Spirit. The power has been given, but to have the power, we've got to be plugged into the Spirit. We've got to wait for it. Too often in our flesh, we will run forward and try to fix the problem ourselves, and we run beyond our extension cord and get unplugged. Right? And it's not like, you know, when you're vacuuming, you're vacuuming along, and you go beyond the cord and boom, it comes out of the wall. You pretty much know that. Have you found yourself just continuing to go when you're unplugged? No, because the machine just comes right down. You hear it. But in our lives, when we get unplugged from the Spirit, there's not that audible, hey, you're, you're going without power now. And so we can keep running, we can keep moving, thinking we're still plugged into the Spirit, when really what we're doing is we're running on ourselves. We're running on our own strength. If you want spiritual power, it's got to come from God. Because we don't have spiritual power in and of ourselves. All of our power comes from God. All of it. We have physical strength without God. He keeps us going, but but we can be totally ignoring God, but we'll still have physical strength. We can totally ignore God and we can still have financial power. We can still have our brains. But without God, we have no spiritual power. Let's keep moving. We're going to put this all together in a minute. Look at verse 6. So when Jesus and the disciples came together, Luke says, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This was not just an idle question. They wanted to know because it was important to them. When are you restoring the kingdom? They wanted power. They wanted strength. Rome was the dominant power of that day, and it was occupying Palestine, the Holy Land. Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? They wanted political power. They wanted military power. Jesus, when are you going to kick these Romans out? You see, Jesus has now established himself as king. Stick with me. When they kill you and you come out of the grave, that kind of proves you're the king. Okay? 
if you can be killed and you can't be stopped. Top that one. Right? So, two days ago, when Jesus is still in the tomb, the disciples' faith is shattered. All of them. That was one problem with, with the show last week, with A.D. A couple of the disciples still were, were holding out hope that Jesus was going to be resurrected. That is just simply not true. When Jesus was in the tomb, the faith of the disciples was gone. Why do you think they were so surprised when the women came back from the tomb? Because they weren't expecting it. Okay? Nobody was. Even the Romans, the Jewish leaders and the Romans, said, we got to put some guards at the tomb. Not because we're afraid He might be resurrected, but because His disciples might go steal the body and fake a resurrection. Okay? They want, the disciples wanted Jesus to establish His kingdom. Hey, we got a king now. They killed Him and He's back. Right? The disciples, what do we got to worry about? They were running in fear for their, their, their lives. And they're looking at Jesus like, hey, they can kill us and we can come back too. So we've got a new king. Let's kick the tires here and see what this new king can do. Right? Now, Jesus doesn't do it the way I would have done it. Jesus comes back, and he, he goes and shows himself to the disciples. That's cool. I would have done that. But if I was Jesus, I'd have gone right back into Pilate. Hi! Remember me? I'd have been in his face. Right? Herod... The chief priests. Nah, 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 boo, boo. Right? You killed me. Ah, but I'm back. Right? Can't keep me down. So the disciples are processing this, and they're like, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Because, man, we got the ace in the hole now. We got it. We got a Messiah that you can kill him, and you can't keep him down. Let's go. When are you going to restore the kingdom? Where was this coming from? Well, they wanted Jesus to kick the Romans out. Get rid of them. Establish your kingdom here on earth. But when Jesus was talking in verse 3 about the kingdom, He kept telling them about the kingdom. They kept hearing the nation of Israel. Their own nation. What they were asking is, what's this going to do for us? You see, this is another example in Scripture of people who don't get it. Right over their head. Jesus is talking about the kingdom, universal. And they say, yeah, but what about our nation? How is this going to affect us? Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Jesus says in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. What Jesus says here when He says, it's not for you to know, was a nice way of saying, it's none of your business. 
This is God's business. This is not your business. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, No one knows the time that God has established for the second coming. Jesus said, and we don't understand this fully, but Jesus said, I don't even know. Now, how can Jesus be God and not, I don't know. But Jesus said, only the Father knows. And so having said that, the disciples come back and said, when are you going to do this? She said, it's not for you to know. Now, look at how many people in our lives try to spend so much time figuring out the future. Try to figure out things that we can't know. People who are constantly worried about what's going to happen next. Are you one of those people? What we are told in the Bible is that we have everything that we need for life and godliness now. We know all we need to know about the future, about the end times. For some people, they got to know everything. That's, where are we going? Why, why are we doing it this way? Right? You ever have people like that? They're so annoying. Just, just don't worry about it. Here's what I need you to do, but why? Just do it. Some people seek power through knowledge. They've got to know every detail. Do you have to know everything first before you'll do anything? Well, just tell me why. Once I know why, then I'll do it. Now stick with me. This is where it begins to all fall into place. The disciples asked Jesus for the timing when the kingdom will be restored. Jesus tells them, it's none of your business. Now look at verse 8 again. This is right after they asked when he was going to restore the kingdom. He said in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus ties our receiving power from the Holy Spirit with our witnessing, sharing the gospel. He ties those two together. You will receive power followed by you will be witnesses. We don't have to have all the answers to our questions of how things are going to play out step by step by step. We already know that God's going to win, right? We already know that. I fast forward to the end of the book. I read Revelation and he's going to win. I, I don't need to know anything else, right? It's kind of like watching a ball game after you know the end of score. You ever miss a ball game that you got it recorded and you, you see in the paper who won the game? Do you go back and watch the game? I already know. No, no point in watching the game. Right? We already know that. Well, we already know that God's going to win. But knowing how and when God's going to accomplish that is not as important as believing that God is going to win. What I need to know is what does God want me to do in the meantime? I don't have to know how everything is going to play out in the end. 
When is it going to happen? How is it? I don't need to know all of that. What do I need to know? I need to know what God wants me to do today. Jesus doesn't say, you should be my witnesses. You ought to be my witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses. Followers of Jesus bear witness to Jesus. If you are not witnessing for Jesus, then you're not a follower of Jesus, no matter what you might think. You're not following Him if you're not doing what Jesus says. This is the business of the church. Witnessing to Christ. Have you ever seen some of these TV preachers who devote their whole television broadcast to talking about future events and how things are going to play out. This nation's going to do this, and that nation's going to do this, and this is going to happen first, and that's going to happen next. That's all they talk about. Speculating on all these things that they don't know. We are not to be focused on dates and times. That's God's business. We don't need to know. But we are to devote ourselves to the business of telling people about the resurrection of Jesus. Remember what we saw last week? Jesus said, just as I was sent, so now I'm sending you. You've got a message now, now go. Jesus said in verse 8, He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is the capital. Judea is the county. Right? Samaria is the the country next to them. And to the ends of the earth, it starts in the middle and it moves out. Our witness is to be local, but it's also to be global. When God gives us His strength, you are given the Holy Spirit, He said. It's for a purpose. As faithful followers of Christ, we are to be witnesses, faithful witnesses for Christ. But too often we feel inadequate. We feel unsure of ourselves. I don't know enough to witness. What if they ask me this question? What if they say that? I don't know how to argue for Christ. You ever feel that way? We lack confidence to speak about the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 said that Jesus gave proof that He was resurrected. Forty days Jesus was with them from the resurrection to the ascension. Forty days. The word there for convincing proofs in the original language is a term that's used to speak of the clinching evidence to prove your case. Jesus gave not proof but convincing proofs that He was alive. This proves that the disciples were not in a grief-induced delusion. You ever hear people say that? 
Well, the disciples were just so distraught. They were so overcome with grief. They wanted so badly to believe that Jesus was coming back that they just created this in their mind. Yet for 40 days, we're told in Scripture that Jesus manifested Himself at one time to over 500 people at once. That's a pretty big delusion right there. Okay? These convincing proofs prove that Jesus' resurrection was not just mass hysteria. Why do I say that? When you go out and you witness for Christ and somebody says, they don't believe in the resurrection. You'll hear people say, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. We're like, well, I wasn't there. I can't prove it. You weren't. But the people who were there wrote about it. Do you realize that we get information every day about events around the world where we weren't, but other people were? And we factor in their testimony, whether we believe it or not. We don't believe everything we read. But you know what? When you have this many people saying the same thing, i got to think, you know, there's something to this story. And you'll hear people say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. I think the disciples just made it up. Okay. So the disciples made up this story that Jesus rose from the dead. And then when the Jewish authorities and even the Roman authorities later came to them and said, renounce your faith or die, they said, okay, kill me. For a lie. Because you understand, if they created the lie, what would they know? It's a lie. Do you know people that will do that? Who will lie? Yeah. Do you know people who will lie and try to cover up the fact that they lied? Sure. How many people do you know who will lie and then try to cover up the fact they lied by dying for the lie? That's where it starts to break down, doesn't it? Can I believe that some people would lie? Of course I do. Can I believe that people would make up a story? Sure. But would they die for it? And we have no evidence anywhere. No one in the world will stand up and say, yeah, this guy over here, his name was Larry. And he was in the meeting the one day when they decided to cook up this story. He was there. And he flipped. And he's like, it was a lie. We just made it up. They have no evidence of this. It's just speculation that some people make. Well, I think it was a made-up story. Really? A made-up story that they were willing to die for. Would you do that? Jesus offered convincing proof. And it was so convincing that the early disciples who saw it were willing to die rather than say, I didn't see what I really saw. When you go out and witness, you can have confidence, not because you were there and you saw it, but because you have the testimony of the people who were there who did see it. And for people who say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection, then you ask them, then where did the church come from? The church exists today because of people who saw the resurrected Lord.
If Jesus died and that was it, that would have been the end of the movement. 2,000 years later, we are not here today because of a lie. We're here today because Jesus truly rose from the dead. Now, let's put a finer point on this. Jesus said you will be witnesses. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be a witness. Let's think about that for a second. They weren't close. When Jesus returns, will you be found witnessing for Christ? Will people around you be able to say, yep, this person told me about Jesus. This person was telling me about the resurrection. Will you be found to be a witness? When Jesus returns, if you don't witness to the people around you, what will you say to the people around you when they say, you knew about this Jesus and you didn't tell me? You knew that Jesus was the only way to heaven and, and apart from Jesus, our only hope was hell and you didn't tell What would you say to them? Yeah, I believed in Jesus for me, but I wasn't going to tell anybody about it. What will you say to those people? The disciples asked Jesus, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? You see, we get too focused on how these things are going to help us. But where's our concern for the world? We get so concerned about our problems and how God is going to help us and what we need from God that everybody else can go to hell. We forget that there's a world out there that doesn't know Christ who is going to hell. Now tell me, which one of your problems is more important than that? Which problem are you facing in your life that's more important than someone going to hell for all eternity? You see, having questions is not a sin. But what we do with our questions might be. You see, if we answer questions differently from the Bible, then that's a sin. The Bible is our source of truth. If we use the fact that we don't have all the answers to justify not doing what we're told to do, that's a sin. We're told to be witnesses not after we receive all the answers. We're told to be witnesses after we receive the Holy Spirit and His power. Sometimes we, well, I'll do it once I know, once I understand, once my questions have been answered. No, no, no. We're obedient before we have all the answers. No, I'm not saying that you turn off your brain that God gave you. But I'm also telling you not to use your brain as an excuse to not be obedient to God. That's a misuse of your intellectual power. We shouldn't be worried about the then and what's going to happen next week, next month, ten years from now. We need to be focused on right now. What am I supposed to be doing Right now. This is consistent with what Jesus taught. Remember, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for today. You got enough to do right now. 
Deal with what you have to do right now. And there is nothing more important in our lives, no thing, nothing more important in our lives than telling other people about Jesus. Are there important things in our lives other than that? Yes, but nothing more important than that. The word for witness is the word martyr. In the Greek language, the word for witness is the same word that we get for someone who dies for their faith to be martyred. You know why? Because when we start standing up for Christ, we will pay a price. People won't like us. We will lose friends. People will cut us off. That's okay. Jesus was willing to die for us. We need to be willing to die for Him. We want power to get our stuff done. We want God's power to fix our problems. But what about God's power to fix the world's problems? To do what they need. We need God's power, not military power. We need God's power to change lives one at a time. To go to someone and tell them about Jesus and His life-changing power. Quick question, how many of you experienced the life-changing power of Christ in your life and you know it today? Amen? No question in my mind that God has demonstrated the power of Christ in my life. Well, that's what we tell others about. We don't try to change people ourselves. We tell them about Christ so that God can change them. One person at a time. When we're plugged into the Spirit, we don't need to know the future. We can just focus on what needs to be done today. We've been commissioned, we've been commanded to take this message to the whole world. What's more important than that? Nothing. At the close of the story, the disciples, they watch Jesus go up to, to heaven and they're like, and then two angels appear and say, what are you doing standing there? What are you doing just looking into heaven? The same way that Jesus went, He's coming back. Jesus didn't say, hey, stand there with your tongue hanging out, watching me go up to heaven. He said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the power. And then go. Well, if you're a follower of Christ and you've received the Holy Spirit, you've got the power. What are you waiting for? I don't want to be caught standing around with my tongue hanging out when Jesus comes back. What are you doing? I told you to go with the message. What are you waiting for? Let's pray.